Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicles Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Moira O'Neill and joining me on the show today are my colleagues Leonora Walters and Kate Bearley. We're also delighted to welcome two special guests, Patrick Connolly, a certified financial planner with Chase Devere, and Alan Miller, founder of SCM Private and SCM Direct. Today we're going to be talking about increasing life expectancy and how this will impact your financial plans and we're also going to look at how to compare exchange traded funds and examine a new development that's affecting UK funds that invest in India. Now we may have had a conservative victory in the polls but some say there's no reason to vote conservative for your investments when investing for what could potentially be a 30-year retirement. Alan, you're, you're fresh from um, the par- party last night. Um, and how do you think people should be investing for retirement when they've got an increased, um, potentially got an increased life expectancy ahead of them? Well, I, I think a lot of the conventional kind of wisdom, you have to really turn on its head. When you actually think about the fact that these days, as you say, people's retirement is much longer than it has been in the past. And the likely expenditure that people are going to have in terms of their own personal medical and health, then you you have to kind of question the conventional wisdom of having, say, a large amount in a kind of so-called low-risk portfolio of government bonds, where for a lot of cases to actually generate uh, the capital and the income actually requires taking on more risk rather than less risk. And you, one can question whether actually holding a bond yielding one percent or one and a half percent is really that low risk anyway as we've seen in the last few weeks with government bonds throughout Europe. Um, Well this this week's portfolio clinic actually features an investor who's 59 and he's about to um, he's about thinking about retirement and he's thinking actually uh, um, some of my relatives have have lived to a grand old age and um, and I feel like I'm aggressively positioned and and, I, and that, that the conventional advice is to sort of de-risk a bit as I go into retirement. But is, is that the right thing to do? Patrick, what do you think? Um, yeah, I, I think we can break this down into two parts. Um, the first is people who are pre-retirement. And when people are much younger, they should, and, and nothing's changed here, they should still be pretty aggressively positioned. As they approach retirement, it really depends what their approach is in terms of generating an income. If they're going to still go and buy an annuity then it still makes sense to reduce risk as you get to that point and then buy an annuity. In this particular case, as people come towards their retirement day, if they're likely to remain actively invested, for somebody who's 60 years old, the average living life expectancy for a man is 86 and for a woman's 89. So so we're talking, and that's average. Some people will live a lot longer than that. So potentially three decades more of being invested. Yeah. And it, it, in order to get your money at least keeping up with inflation and giving you a bit of growth as well, you need to have some money invested into equities. It's as simple as that. I mean, when we're looking at life expectancy figures, a lot of people will look at the life expectancy at birth figures, mm-hmm. um, and which obviously, if you've reached retirement age, your life expectancy is much higher than that. So you mustn't get, it's probably about four or five years 
five years more, isn't it, than life expectancy at birth. Yeah. So you mustn't get distracted by that. And, and, and as well, they're only average figures. And yes. average means that half the people are likely to live longer than that and potentially a fair bit longer than that. So you cannot prepare to die at an average life expectancy. You need to be looking beyond that, especially if you're in good health at age 59 or age 60. Yes. I mean, the, sustaining an income throughout that period is, is one of the key challenges that people are facing when they're investing for retirement. You know, you want you want to basically... Um, have a nice, comfortable lifestyle and spend as much as you can when you're alive, but you don't want it to, your money to run out, yeah. um, you know, a few mm. years before you, you go. And Alan, when you're thinking about in, uh, income investing, do you have any general advice for, for people? Well, I, I think, like everything, you need to have balance. And there's a lot of funds which have high headline yields. And all that's happening is basically you're seeing your capital reduced every year to compensate for the for the headline high yield. So uh, we look at everything in terms of total return. And I think it, whilst the private investor quite often is kind of attracted by, you know, the advert says 6% yield or 5% yield, it, it, it normally comes with a kind of risk warning attached to it that it's investing in something maybe obscure or what you're seeing is essentially you're not going to get much capital growth. And I think the most important thing is to, to have balance. Balance in your portfolio, balance where it's invested, and look at the total return because it's income and capital. If you're going to be you know, funding your retirement for 20 or 30 years, you know, you, 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 that, there's going to be inflation. You're going to need your capital to hopefully keep up at least in line with inflation. And that means having a balanced portfolio of maybe bonds and equities rather than have a high bias towards necessarily bonds. You mentioned um, 6% as a, as a high level of income to be taking. You know, people obviously would love to do that. But is that sustainable, Patrick? You know, um, well, obviously, if, if you're taking 6% income, there, there, there are no guarantees at all in terms of capital. Uh, our starting position for, for the vast majority of people is trying to get a secure income in retirement to meet your basic living costs. That secure income comes from basic state pension, any final salary pensions that you have, and also annuities. Beyond that, it's a case then of looking at your investment portfolio in order to derive your income, yes, but also to maintain its value. So you need to be wary of, of on one hand, taking too much risk. So you wouldn't want everything in equities. On the, on the flip side, you have to be wary of taking too little risk. You wouldn't, on the same basis, want everything in bonds as well. Because over time, over 10, 20, 30 years, then inflation is likely to be eating into that. And um, when, you, when you're trying to secure a basic level of income, what kind of um, levels do you, do you find your clients are comfortable with? It really is case, case by case. I mean, we look at basic living costs so that if their investment strategy doesn't work, at the very least, it's not going to harm their standard of living. So I, I wish there was a set figure. There really isn't. It, it is individual to individual. They, they have different requirements in terms of what they want. And also, of course, they have different levels, levels of assets in order to provide it. Would there be any way of securing a basic income through investments? So, for example, just moving a portion to, to cash every every year so you, you, you know that that's secure for the next few years. Alan? Well, you can, in a way, if you're investing efficiently, which is, part, of, I think, one of the most important things, because if you think about it, if you expect overall investment returns to be lower and you're paying essentially away 50 or 60% of that underlying uh, investment return and charges, there's actually not much you're going to receive at the end of the day. 
and you have to kind of consider investing efficiently, investing with balance. And if you're investing efficiently, where you can actually sell down part of the portfolio because the charges are low or because it's and it's liquid and and low cost, you can essentially create the income and. Rather than, if you like, have one of these basically slanted portfolios, where there, as I said, there's this headline income to attract you, but your capital is being eroded over time. I think we'll move on now to to talk about the kinds of investments you should be holding in your portfolio.、Uh, and this week,、um, Kate Bealey has been looking at exchange traded funds. Now, these are passive investments. That are listed on the stock market can be can be traded, and they're also promoted as as core portfolio holdings.、Um, so you can use them as building blocks to create a, a portfolio that's low cost. Now, Kate, you were lo- you were looking at some particular ETFs that are called core and being marketed as core ETFs. So they're meant to be ultra low cost. Yeah,、um, well, that's right. In The past two weeks,、uh, in general, I've been talking a lot about the cost of ETFs, and yeah, last week I was looking at these core products, which were launched by iShares and Deutsche Bank, and yeah, they're designed to be very low-cost kind of core portfolio holdings. And I was looking at whether or not these were actually cheaper than their originals or than kind of other ETFs when you look at the actual trading costs. So the kind of gap between the buy and sell price, because we looked at this last year when when they first came out and found that in fact, although they're much cheaper in terms of ongoing charge, a lot of them would be more expensive if you held them for kind of certain time periods, just because of the wide gap between buy and sell price.、Um, and so that's all to do with kind of liquidity. Some of these were quite small,、um, and it's just basically something you need to think about now. When we look this year, when I looked kind of last week, in fact, the case for these core products is a lot more compelling now. Partly because a lot of them are bigger.、Um, iShares has, for example, switched one of its ETFs so that the larger, more popular one,、uh, tracking the FTSE 100, is now its core product, and they've cut the price. So on every metric, there is it's cheaper. The spread is very small. Um, so in, in many <coughs> cases, these are these are very appealing now, and I think that the case for buying a core product. Is is better?、Um, I mean, Alan, what what do you make of these core ranges? Deutsche Bank, iShares. Do you do you hold them? Would you yes, switch out? We we hold some of them. I mean, I think many of them are excellent products.、Um, as you say, I mean, the words you use, building blocks, in in constructing a balanced portfolio, you want to, if you like, have a a balance of core, well spread indexes. Efficiently invested at low cost and liquid, and then、um, quite often to improve returns, maybe、um, tilt the portfolio towards more value-based ETFs or small cap ETFs or particular kind of areas of the world where you see more potential. But these, a lot of these products are ex- excellent core holdings within a portfolio. What, what kind of indices should people be looking at? At tracking as a sort of core building blocks. Well, it, it depends on your risk appetite and what you're looking for.、Um, I mean, if you start with the home of the UK, then if you like your your base, I think is the FTSE All Share because the FTSE All Share includes not just the large companies but the mid-sized companies and the smaller companies. Now there are times when the larger companies are. More are much cheaper, 
and therefore you might want to kind of have more on, a, say, a FTSE 100 ETF. Now, f- because it's a FTSE 100 ETF, they tend to be lower cost anyway. Small cap ETFs are really not available. So within the UK, if you want to have that tilt, you have to do it via essentially a mid-cap ETF, a FTSE 250 product. So it is, and then you have the choice, well, actually, maybe I don't want to have that index, but I want to have something that's tilting towards value stocks or tilting towards stocks that tend to be less volatile. So the, the great thing about ETFs is there's, there's a huge amount of choice. They're fantastically low cost, they're fantastically liquid, and you can see what you're getting. Patrick, um, do you use um, ETFs in your client portfolios? How, how do you use them? We, we do use passive investments. We, we, we think there is very much a case for passives in areas where you're not confident you're going to outperform with an active approach. But we don't use ETFs. Uh, we use tracker funds rather than ETFs. Um, I can see the argument for ETFs. You get real-time dealing. There are a whole range of different asset classes you can invest into. And on the face of it, the, the, they're pretty low cost as well. The flip side for us in terms of how we manage our client money is is that, firstly, we don't make tactical calls. So we don't make short-term tactical calls. So the real-time dealing doesn't matter. Uh, in terms of asset classes, we don't invest in obscure asset classes. We would invest, as Alan says, in areas like like um, FTSE stock market, and we may use passive funds for that. But, but a potential issue for us as well is if we're rebalancing client portfolios, and especially if we're moving small amounts of money around, it then doesn't become cost-effective to pay stockbroking charges on ETFs all the time as well. Final point as well is some of the platforms that we use and some of the platforms our clients use actually don't have act- access to ETFs as well, whereas they do have access to trackers. So from a pure practical perspective, again, often it's easier for us and, and easier for the client to use a tracker fund rather than an ETF. Um, can you get as low cost, though, using a, a tracker fund? Do you... for, for, from our perspective, if you look at the, the cost of tracker funds, again, like ETFs, the costs have come down significantly. You can invest for somewhere in the region of about 0.1% annual management charge in, in these. And if you're rebalancing by the time that you look at the stockbroking charges as well, by doing that, especially for small amounts then we would make the argument for a large number of our clients that actually it may well be cheaper to invest in a tracker rather than an ETF. So this would apply where you're um, putting regular small amounts aside, say, on a, on a monthly basis? Um, also yeah. also where you're rebalancing client portfolios, where every six yeah. or 12 months you look and move money out of areas that perform well into areas that haven't. And if you're moving small amounts uh, into and out of an ETF, well, certainly coming into an ETF, then you're going to have stockbroking charges as well. Alan, you you use ETFs for the for your whole portfolio, yes. don't you? Um, for your clients, I mean, for our clients, they're hugely advantageous because, first of all, um, we've negotiated special rates for execution of the ETFs anyway. So we deal on behalf of clients at uh, 0.07%, which is a very low commission rate, without pound signs on top. And if you think about somebody building a multi-asset portfolio. One of the great things about ETFs is that you know the price before you deal. And if you're moving part of the portfolio, say, from the US to UK or vice versa, you you can take out, if you like, that risk. I, I call it kind of Murphy's Law, that you might make that decision today. And the, the index that you're selling, if you do it by a conventional mutual fund, it could be, a, be 1% or 2% different by 12 o'clock tomorrow and the one you're buying 1% or 2% different the other way. So the great thing about ETFs is you've got this huge choice. They're incredibly efficient. And the actual spread in terms of buying and selling, if you buy a mutual fund, you could be buying it at the cancellation price, creation price, bid price, offer price. Basically, you will not have a clue the price until after you deal. 
Whereas with an ETF, it's on the screen, it's efficient, it's liquid, and it's a brilliant way to invest. You sound quite evangelical there, <laughs> Alan. Um, the, the massive choice, though, is problematic and quite confusing for investors. And, and Kate, this week, has been writing about how to uh, sort of differentiate between exchange-traded funds say, that track the same index. Kate, what have you found out? Um, well, yeah, I was, I was looking into this because or on the back of um, this new ranking system launched by data company um, FE Trustnet. Because up till now, there, there have been a lot of comparisons on, on sites, on ratings agencies, but all for active funds. And those rankings have been based on performance, so just how much things have beaten the benchmark. Now, that's obviously not appropriate when we're talking about passive funds, because what you want to know is how closely it's tracked. Um, but I was interested to see whether Trustnet system is, you know, is actually useful for, for investors and whether those are the things, whether there are more things you should be looking at in terms of ETFs and the kind of criteria you should be looking for. Um, so um, Trustnet system, it rounds up funds which are older than three years um, and within certain categories it thinks of interest UK investors. And then it sees which have the lowest tracking difference and tracking error, so both metrics concerned with um, how closely it hugs the benchmark and then looks at fund size which it takes as a proxy for liquidity. Um, I mean there is an issue though with this for a retail investor. In fact there is more to buying ETF than just its performance. You want to know about um, the index, you want to know about the total cost of owning it and things like liquidity and bid offer spread come into that. So, I mean, FE's managing director says that, in fact, you can see every single cost of an ETF in tracking difference and tracking error. But everybody seems to disagree on that. Um, Alan, I Alan's can, shaking I, his head. Yes. <laughs> no, I, I'm sorry. I mean, I, it's ironic that it, I think it's called a crown system. And I would say that it has as much value and long, longevity as a paper hat from McDonald's, to be honest. Um I mean, it, it is as well as closely useless as anything I've, I've ever seen. If, if you think about it, when you're investing, you, as I keep on saying, you need balance. And there's, there's three elements. There's cost, risk, and return. Well, it doesn't really measure the cost at all. It doesn't look at the, the return, and it doesn't look at the risk. It, it looks at three measures. One is um, uh, tracking difference. The other is tracking error. Well, I mean, tracking error, if people is investing, whether it's 0.01% or 0.02%, what people really want is the return. And a lot of the return comes from what you're actually investing in. And it's completely ignored ignored by Trustnet. Because, yeah, I think what you're saying, Alan, is that the index is one of the most important things when it comes to ETFs. And actually, maybe what we need when we're talking about ETFs is somewhere to compare indices um, on a risk and return basis. Because... When it comes to individual ETF performance, yes, tracking difference is important. But when it comes to investing, maybe what you want to know is what index is right for me. Do you think that's the case? Mm. Patrick, how do you choose um, your passive funds? I know you're not investing in ETFs, but passive um, funds as as holdings for your clients. How how do you go about choosing the index that you're going to hold? The the, the starting level for us is asset allocation. Mm. And as as Alan's mentioned a, a few times 
having the balanced portfolio is the right approach for the vast majority of people. It's just a case of what that balance is. We'll then look and see which areas we're not confident that an active approach will outperform. Um, people talk about the US a lot. We can make that argument, certainly, and, and look to see which indices will give you the best exposure to the US market. In terms of picking providers, we'll tend to pick those providers, one that use full replication or as near as you can, uh, number two, that have got competitive charges. And number three is a company that has a reputation and we're confident are experienced at running passive portfolios. And full, full replication you dropped in there, that's a, a bit of jargon that really refers to um, holding absolutely every stock that's in the index because some passive funds and ETFs don't do that. Is that right? That, that's absolutely yeah. correct. Now, now, that may not always be practical. I mean, Alan mentioned the FTSE All Share. I mean, you wouldn't hold all of the smaller companies, but certainly the, the large and big caps, you'd expect them to do exactly that. There's, there's also one other factor for a lot of private investors in that um, you should also be very careful that you select an ETF that has a reporting status. Because if you invest in an ETF that doesn't have a reporting status, then the income, um, sorry, the capital gain will be treated as income and not all ETFs have reporting status there's still um, a fair number in the UK that don't have it so I would I would advise people before investing in a any once they choose you know the area they want to invest in which is the first decision to make sure the ETF they invest in has a reporting status and that that that's to do with the the tax status really of the ETF and how you're you know to make sure that you don't have more tax taken off than, than you're expecting yeah. to have. For, mo- yeah. for most people, you're better off being taxed as a capital gain than income. Great stuff. Well, I think there's some very useful advice there. This week, um, Leonora Walters, our Deputy Personal Finance Editor, has been looking at a, a tax that potentially is going to affect funds that invest in India. Leonora, can you explain what, what this is? Um, yes, um, UK funds in India could be uh, facing demands for minimum alternative tax, um, tax on the book profit of a company, um, which was previously thought not to apply to foreign funds. Um, this has changed because there was a 2012 ruling that a foreign entity um, should pay capital gains on some shares it sold. And um, taking that court ruling as a precedent, the Indian authorities are now going after portfolio managers from abroad um, with tax demands for the year 2012-2013. And it's expected they're going to go after people for all the years between 2009 and 2015. Um, there won't be any demands for tax after 2015 because they have said quite firmly that this won't apply after the 1st of April this year. But that's quite a few years and quite a few liabilities. And turning to <coughs> managers that um, I think investors in this country are familiar with, Aberdeen has admitted that it's been presented with a bill, but it is fighting this in court and it applies to an offshore fund. So hopefully not too many of our readers will have that. Now, I went to Aberdeen to check up on the situation of some of our IC Top 100 funds because we count a lot of Aberdeen investment trusts in our IC Top 100 funds and a number of them have exposure to India. And Aberdeen has confirmed to me that there have been no tax demands to date for New India, Edinburgh Dragon or Aberdeen Asian smaller companies. Now, we have a big asset manager um, that retail investors may um, have funds um, with is um, First State. And we again, we count 
a couple of her funds in the IC Top 100 funds. Now, it's been confirmed to me that Pacific Assets Trust, which has more than 30% of its assets in India, hasn't had a tax demand. But we do also count First State Asia-Pacific leaders, and I don't know what the situation there is yet. Um, I think it's an unfolding situation. And a lot will hinge, actually, on the challenges that both Aberdeen and this foreign company that got a tax bill after the 2012 ruling, um, you know, how, how those will pan out if um, if it's successfully in challenging court, maybe maybe this will stop. I think more importantly, you know, it's it's a short-term issue and it's not a major driver. <coughs> As one advisor said to me, don't disinvest in India because of this, because ultimately it's the Indian stock market that will drive your fund returns, you know, not a one-off tax demand. Patrick, what what would advice would you give to investors within with funds that inve- are investing in India? Yeah, it's a very interesting story. Um, the, the Aberdeen case, in particular, I mean, Aberdeen are going to the Indian courts to to fight this, and and they've openly admitted <coughs> that the cost of the court fees will be far more than any liability they're trying to fight. So they're fighting it on principle, and and I think that's the big concern there because a lot of advisors and Leonora's mentioned one there have been heavily promoting India this year. Um, what what this really puts into question is the credibility and the economic reforms of the Indian government, uh, more so than than any potential tax liabilities. Uh, as Leonora says, the, there is no liability anyway from April this year, so it's just looking respect, retrospective tax for the past few years. The amounts, as far as I understand, are, are not huge. It's just a case of having trust in the Indian government, having trust in the Indian government and the reforms that they're making in order to be accommodating to foreign investors. And, and, and that's, that's the big concern. And that's the risk of investing in the emerging markets in general. Political risks, corporate government's risk, infrastructure risks. And, and here we're seeing an example of potential political risks. Is India a region that you think investors should hold in their portfolios? We are reluctant to hold individual emerging market countries because of this particular risk. Um, so because of the, the particular risks. So we will hold emerging markets typically through broad base funds, which will have exposure to India, but actually alongside a whole range of other countries and companies as well. So if, if you want to go for individual emerging market countries, yes, the potentials are great, but actually the risks are pretty high as well. Uh, Alan, um, what do you do for emerging markets exposure? Do you go for single <coughs> country products or do you hold a broader... Um, vehicles that give exposure to lots of different emerging markets companies oh, countries sorry. we we tend to have a, um, a mix of the two to be honest so we have emerging small cap etf within the portfolios we have a diversified large and mid-size uh, etf we've we've just sold our uh, russian etf after it uh, it's gone up 25 percent this year um, we've had exposure till the end of last year in china a shares you know through an etf you it can be very successful, but again, it's all about balance. So if you're investing in a very volatile market like China A-shares, you shouldn't have a large percentage of your portfolio in it. Um, Leonora, you've also this week been looking at another emerging market in the form of a, a listing of a massive investment trust um, which invests in uh, Romania. Can you tell us about this? Um, yes, a couple of weeks ago, Fondle Proprietatio, um listed in London. It's a secondary <coughs> listing. This um, investment trust is already listed in Romania. This investment trust invests in both listed 
and unlisted um, Romanian companies. It was set up originally in 2005 to compensate Romanians whose properties were seized during a communist regime. But it's, you know, it's reaching out to a wide audience now. Most of the shareholders are foreign investors. And the reason it listed in London was to make it even more accessible to foreign investors to bring in what was quite a, a wide discount to uh, net asset value. It um, is looking to change its asset mix. Around half of its companies are unlisted, but they're quite keen to spin these off. I mean, these are sort of like kind of state-owned sort of generally utilities and resource companies. It's done a lot of IPOs already, and it's got quite a few in the pipeline. Um, and it's looking to have, um, I suppose, a more liquid equity-listed portfolio in future. Um, it's um, it's certainly not a mainstream option. I don't think it's um, suitable for you know most investors have a very high risk appetite. But its manager says that you know <coughs> there is potential in the Romanian economy. Um, it can he thinks it can the GDP there can grow at least as well as in 2014 or, or even better when it grew 2.8%. Um, it's got a new loan agreement with the IMF. And, um, you know, it, it's uh, implementing structural reforms. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's, I suppose there's a, you know, a good growth story there, although it's a, it's a very high-risk market. I think what makes this fund interesting as well, it's actually quite attractive for dividends because part of the policy to get this discount in has been a lot of, um, you know, good dividend payments <coughs> and a lot of share buybacks. Um, so the dividend's progressive and, um, it's, you know, it's targeting quite a high yield. So it could appeal on that front, again, for investors who do have a, a very high risk appetite and a large portfolio of which it forms a small part. Pa- Patrick, I can see um, you raising your eyebrows at the, the, the thought of investing in this fund. What, what, do, you, what do you think? I, I think the word attractive scared me a little bit, George, when you, <laughs> there was words there. Um, it, it goes back to, to what we were talking about a minute ago, which, which is the risk of inv- investing in individual emerging market countries. And again, you have to question the markets, the infrastructure, the opportunities that are available in Romania. And the discount on this particular investment trust, as quoted in today's Investors Chronicle, is 24%. It's been much higher than that. That's not a surprise. The discount is a reflection of demand and supply for an investment trust. Um, I'm, I'm aware that the largest shareholders have challenged the managers, Franklin Templeton, to bring that discount down. It's going to be a challenge because certainly we're not getting clients knocking on our doors asking to invest in Romania. <laughs> I, I think it's incredibly unlikely that's going to happen. So it's going to be certainly be a challenge for them. Uh, Alan, Romania, what, what do you, what's your thoughts on that as an investment story? Uh, not great, it would, be, it would be the summary. I think if you are going to, say, invest part of your portfolio in, say, Eastern Europe, you're, you're better off having a, a much more diversified product than simply Romania if that is your choice and I, I wouldn't strongly recommend it to be honest. It's, it's not something we can ignore though I mean it's, a, it's such a, a massive fund um, and, and you know it's been touted as one of the biggest listings for a while so um, do you think it's just something that you should watch with um, sort of an eye for entertainment rather than really investing? Yeah, it's a massive fund, largely because of its origins, as Leonor Leonor explained. Mm -hmm. Um, That doesn't necessarily mean that it will be particularly popular in the UK. I cannot see UK investors being that interested in this fund. And as you say, the the danger is the kind of double whammy. If you're investing in a kind of 
obscure market by an investment trust and that market does badly, it's likely the discount is going to widen. So you're going to lose on the performance and you're going to lose on the discount. And so you're effectively going to lose double what you might have lost originally. Great. Well, thank you very much for all your insights. Um, so that's a thank you to Patrick Connolly of Chase Devere and to Alan Miller of SCM Direct and to Leonora Walters and Kate Bearley of the Investors Chronicle. You can read more about investing for a long retirement, about how to rank exchange-traded funds, and also about the Romanian fund launch in this week's issue of Investors Chronicle. Thank you for listening.